you would like to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd like for you to follow along with us this morning in our text. Just raise your hand up, and when you're done with that Bible, you can just leave it in the pew behind you. And if you don't have one, you can go ahead and take that Bible home with you and use it. I know some of you are newer to our church, and you're wondering what this church is all about. Let me really encourage you to jump into one of these ethos communities. I really think that you would enjoy it and be encouraged by others as they follow Christ. One of the desires I have in my life is to write a book, but the problem is I don't think anybody will read it. So I'm considering writing an e-book and making it free so at least some of you will feel guilty for not reading it. But there is this, 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 this concern I have for myself, and it's a concern I have for you, and it's been kind of brewing in my mind for a while and in my heart, and I'm thinking, well, I just want to kind of put it out there and, and, and write a book about it. And, and here is the uh, working title of the book. It's called The Trivial Life. The Trivial Life. And, and I'm still working on a subtitle, and it's, still, it's a work in progress, but it may be something like this. The default reality of unintentional living. And, and the argument is, is that all of us by nature have this default to the trivial life where we get caught up, where we live and we focus on inconsequential and, and meaningless stuff. And it happens all the time. We just get distracted and we start focusing on pointless things. Just, just think about this last week in your life. Was there anything just kind of trivial that you were kind of obsessed with? Like, for example, I am considering buying a new watch. I have a $10 watch right now that I'm disappointed with. I don't know why it keeps falling behind on time. How hard is it to keep up? But it's it's not doing so well. And I got some money from some relatives for Christmas. And so I've been obsessing about buying a watch. So I went to, on, on a date with my wife on, on Thursday night. We went to go eat. And, you know, just a little hint, a little, little tip here, guys. It, it, you don't have to spend a lot of money on a date, all right? Your, your wife, your girlfriend can still appreciate just spending time together. So we went to go eat. And then we went to Barnes & Noble just to read free books and magazines that we do not intend to purchase ever. So, so I go there, and I'm looking at the magazines, and I kid you not, there's a magazine called Watch. I'm looking for a watch. It's got to be in the magazine. So I get the magazine, and I'm, I'm a smart consumer because I have my iPhone Amazon app where I can check the prices of the watch in the magazine so I can see which watch I want to purchase. So I'm looking through the magazine, and I'm like, oh, that's a cool watch. I punch it in to see how much it is on Amazon. It's like $3,000. I'm like, okay, well, that's just an exception. So I find the next cool watch. I punch it in, $24,000. Who has a $24,000 watch? So I'm going through there, and I kid you not, I found one for $84,000 that you can buy on Amazon. It may be free shipping. Who knows? But $84,000. And I don't know what's more trivial, my obsession with it, or someone would have an $84,000 watch. And, and it's these trivial things that we can kind of just get obsessed about. And, and what I can praise God for is that Jesus, he comes and intervenes in our life, and he, he rescues us with, from our obsessions with just pointless things. 
things on this earth that will pass away. And when he saves us, he puts his spirit within us and it, it like opens our eyes and our mind and our heart so we can see what's real and what's trivial and, and what's kind of just meaningless. And, and, but what's, what's kind of discouraging is that even though we have this revelation at conversion, through time we find ourselves drifting back to the trivial we find ourselves drifting, drifting back to the inconsequential. And from time to time, Jesus needs to intervene in our lives almost on a daily basis to wake us up to what's real, to show us in his work, convict us by his spirit, to show us what is, what is really truly real. And fortunately, if you find yourself in this cycle of trivialness, that today you're in a good spot because Jesus is going to confront us graciously with his word to wake us up to show us how we can live lives that give glory to him. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 23. We will finish Matthew sometime uh, in April after Easter. Uh, but we're in chapter 23 right now. And we're about to look at some of Jesus' last words on this earth before he is killed on the cross. Now, some of his final words are strong and harsh. I mean, harsh. I mean, strong. Don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what he, what he, he said. And what he's doing, he's warning the disciples about following the leadership of Israel. And talk about trivial. The leadership of Israel could have I should just put them on the front of my book cover because they were living the trivial life. And Jesus is warning his disciples to watch out, to not be like those leaders because if they're not careful, by default, they'll do the same thing that the leaders are doing. So it's, it's a very strong warning. Now, before we jump in, I, I just want to kind of let you know that even though Jesus is very strong and harsh in his condemnation of the leaders, it comes from a heart of longing, a longing for the leaders to repent, longing for Israel to be gathered to him. It comes from a, a heart of grace and compassion. So don't think Jesus is here to beat people up. He gets grace and he longs to gather them to him. And I want to start there before we go into the harsh judgments. So start in verse 37 of chapter 23. Look at his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children to gather together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this last line is going to carry us into the next chapter and the next three weeks. The next three weeks, we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about end times, but we're going to get to that over the next three weeks. But for today, he has this imagery of a hen gathering her brood, which means nothing to the city boy. That means nothing to me. So I'm like, what's a hen? Well, I know what a hen is, but what's the brood? I just don't get it. So I'm like, I had to go look for a picture. Right, I got a picture. I found a picture. All right. That, that, does that help? 
a little bit. Well, that there's a hen with her, with her brood, and, and the concept is that Jesus, he cares for Israel. He longs to gather them to himself to protect them. He is their Messiah. He came to save them from their sins. He doesn't want Rome to come and to sack them. He doesn't want destruction to come upon them. He, he has desire for them to repent. He's compassionate. He's gracious. But unfortunately, they have pushed their Messiah away on a whole. Most of them have rejected him. And they're spiritually going to be judged. And in A.D. 70, as you may know, Jerusalem will be sacked or was sacked by the Romans. Now, today, as these warnings are going to hit you hard, and I think they will hit you hard, I don't think they have a note of finality. Because when Jesus was speaking to the leaders and to Israel, it had a note of finality because they didn't repent and bam, judgment came. But I, I think that as Matthew is recording these events, he's not just recording to tell us facts. He's recording so that we as the church do not fall into the same error as these leaders. And so as we hear these words today and we get convicted in certain areas of our lives, don't think, oh, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. No, no. Think, okay, I'm going I'm to repent and I'm going to run into the gracious and loving arms of Jesus. But I would say you do have a choice. For those of you who get convicted today and you choose not to run into the gracious, loving arms of Jesus, the, the alternative is, is pretty harsh. Maybe you don't want Christ. Maybe you don't want to follow Jesus. And, and judgment is real. So as we, we jump into this today, I want you to know that there is there's life in Christ. And these woes, as we're going to see we're gonna, a number of woes again and again, don't let it scare you. Make, it, make you run into the arms of Christ for grace and love. So let's just jump right in. Verse 13, here we go. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is helpful. This is a little summary of where we're going. We're going to have seven woes that Jesus is going to pronounce upon the religious leaders. And it's not like, whoa, that is so cool. It's, not, it's more like, whoa, you're doing wrong and you will be judged. So they're coming across much harsher. And there's going to be seven of them. And the main issue is that they're, they're going to be judged because they're hypocritical. If you remember from last week, they speak the word of God, but they don't do it. And all their actions are for just a show so that others can pat them on the back and, and give them praise. But at the core of their problem, at the core of their hearts, they do not love God and they do not love others. So Jesus hits them hard with these seven curses, these seven woes. Now, what I want us to do this morning is as we go through these seven woes, I want you to pick one out that applies to you. Pick one out that really convicts you. Pick one out that really stirs you up and, and makes you want to run into the arms of Jesus. Because that's, I think it's very important when we come to church that we're not just always learning knowledge about God in an abstract way. We also need to see what's going on in our own hearts, see what's going on in our own lives so we learn more about ourselves in our relationship with God. It's what um, theologians and scholars have called throughout history the concept of double knowledge. Don't let this trip you up. Double knowledge. Let me put a quote up from this uh, John Calvin in his famous Institutes. He wrote, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. 
So in order to know God, you have to know yourself. And in order to know self, you have to know God. Let me put it to you like in, in, in seminary language. There was a seminary professor, professor uh, I was listening to him speak one time, and he said, too many times we say we want to know God, but we don't want to know ourselves. And what he means by that is that we want to know God in an abstract way. We want to just know information about God, and we don't want to make the connection with our own lives. But if we were to have a relationship with him, as we know ourselves and we see how messed up we are and how we need his grace, we know him better. And as we get to know him better, it reflects upon us and we say, okay, I'm loved. I, I got sufficiency here. So I think it's very important. We're talking about self-knowledge. We're not just talking about the, the psychiatrist's office or the psychologist's office or the counseling office. We're talking about this is how we should function. As Christians, we want to be honest about what's going on inside of us. We want to know ourselves, and as we know ourselves, we'll get to know God better. As we know Him better, we'll know what's going on, and we just create this relationship with Him. So double knowledge is very important. So as we dive into this today, I want you to be honest about what is going on inside of your heart. Very important. So let's jump in with the first woe, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This brings us to woe number one for those of you who want to keep notes. Woe number one is shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Like, how, how do they do that? Well, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and they made sure that others rejected Jesus as their, as their Messiah as well. By what they taught and how they lived, they kept others from eternal life. Have you ever thought about your, your life and what you teach and the way you live as slamming the door of heaven in people's faces? Maybe there's some of you here, and I, I just want to just, just, just be really honest. I'm not trying to be mean with you, but maybe there's some of you here that you claim to be a Christian. And when you talk to a non-Christian, you say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. But Jesus is not the only way to heaven. There, there are other ways to heaven. And you, you think that sounds nice and, and loving, but what that does is that slams the work of Christ on the cross. And it also slams the door in heaven in someone's face. But we can also slam the door in others' faces by the way we live. Too many times we can present a right gospel, good doctrine, and our lives are totally messed up. So, as I speak to a crowd like this, you may think that some of the things I say have no, they just don't have anything to do with you, and then that's fine. But I have been in this church long enough to know that this is what happens. You'll have a guy or a girl, but let's pick on the guys right now. There is a guy who claims to be a Christian, knows the gospel because he grew up in a good evangelical church, starts dating a non-Christian girl, and he is proclaiming the gospel to her accurately, and he is sleeping with her, slamming the door in her face. We can slam the door in people's faces in, in different ways, in corrupting the message of the gospel, or getting it right and then blowing it with our lives. 
And I just want to say, if you associate yourself with Jesus, you associate yourself with his teaching, and you associate yourself with his demands on your life. And we live in a country where I would, I would go out on a limb and say this. Most people who proclaim in this country to be a Christian either distort the gospel or they distort it by the way that they live. And I'm just talking to you. I don't, I don't want that to be you. I don't want you to be one of those so-called Christians who are just slamming the door in people's faces because you either got the gospel all messed up or your life is all messed up. You're not truly associated with Christ. Woe number one. Let's move on to woe number two. Verse 15. Verse 14 is not included in most ancient manuscripts. We can talk about that other time if you like, but we're going on to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe number two, Jesus is not messing around. Woe number two, make converts children of hell. What if someone said that to you? You're making converts children of hell. I mean, these leaders were pumped about evangelism among the nations. They wanted to see Gentiles converted. So they go out and they would, as some scholars would say, they would preach their, their particular view of sectarian theology and, and Judaism and just in such a narrow, messed up way. And they were trying to make converts. But as they made a convert, they were just making converts for hell because their converts were even more zealous than them. And so they were going to hell and their converts we're going to hell. And as I want to speak to you who are uh, bold and zealous about making converts, hopefully that would be all of you, I want to know what are you teaching and converting people to? Are you converting people to um, a gospel of personal happiness? Are you converting people to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's be honest. The dominant theology in America that you're going to see in most of the number one selling books that are our so-called Christian, most of the preachers that you're going to see that are popular in America, not in our particular um, biblical wing, but the most popular ones, are going to be promoting a gospel of personal happiness. And with all good error, there's also some good truth, Right? that we are saved and we find joy in Christ. There is freedom from our sins. But the gospel that is primarily promoted in America says, look, God wants you to be absolutely happy. So he wants your relationships to work perfectly so you can be happy. He wants you to be financially stable, well-off, and prosperous. He wants your body to be completely healed on this earth He wants you to live this victorious Christian life where we're all just happy. And there is some good truth in there, but there's also a lot of error. Error just kind of just mixed in there because it's totally ignoring a theology of suffering. It's totally ignoring a theology of sacrifice. And it's totally ignoring the main point of the gospel, which is to reconcile us to a holy God through Jesus Christ so that we bow to his lordship, submit to his purposes for us no matter what. 
And so all I want to know is, what are you converting people to? When you're talking to someone going through some hard times, you can say, just come to Jesus and you're going to be happy. No, it's about, not about that. It's about you can be reconciled to a holy God and you'll be included in the kingdom. You'll have a relationship with God who loves you. He'll give you joy even in the midst of suffering. Be careful what we're converting people to. Be careful. Third well, let's keep going. Verses 16 and 22. Don't let me lose you here because this one is confusing. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Don't you love that? You blind fools. What who says that? Oh, it's Jesus talking. It's the red letters. Keep going. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Well, number three, superficial spirituality. These blind guides have created an elaborate system of superficial silliness. They say that they can make some certain religious oaths or they want their words to have weight and so they swear. You can think about people in our age who may swear on their dead grandmother's grave to make what they say have weight. And these guys have created this elaborate system where they say the temple is nothing and the altar is nothing. However, if you swear on the gold that is in the temple, ah, Your words have weight. Or if you swear upon the gift on the altar, ah, your words have weight and have meaning and you keep your oath. And Jesus says, you are fools. He says, God lives in the temple. The temple itself is sanctified and holy. God significantly cares about what happens on the altar. The altar itself is sanctified and holy. This is all explained in Exodus 29. And he can continually connects it back to God. God is the one who dwells in the temple, so the temple is sanctified. God is the one who dwells in heaven, so heaven is sanctified. And what he's getting at and what he's trying to teach to his disciples is, look, don't take these superficial oaths. Let what you say be what you say. Do you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 37? He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Why is it evil? Because it's superficial spirituality. It's saying, I'm going to make commitments that are religious in nature. I'm going to make commitments that are relational in nature. And sometimes I'll keep them, and sometimes I won't. And it'll all be dependent upon my little superficial oath. Speaking about superficiality, we are at that time of year... January 15th, about 15 days into the new year, where 
millions of Americans are breaking their superficial New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to go off on you. How many of you have already blown it? Come on now. Thank you for some honest people out there. You're like, yeah, that 15 days ago, I was pumped, but it's gone. And, you know, it's usually, and it's fine. There's no condemnation here, right? It's fine. But what I want to talk to you about is I know some of you, as you're approaching the new year or even before the new year, you're thinking, you know what? I want to have these, these spiritual commitments. Like you want to go to church or do you want to jump in accountability? I feel God's calling you to do something. Or you feel like you just, you just, maybe you're exploring Christianity. You want to know what Jesus is all about. Let me just encourage you. Don't give yourself an out. Let the commitments that you've made where you want to know Christ more, held more accountable, be in community, don't give yourself an out. Don't make your commitment superficial. Because what's going to happen? Things are going to get hard. Your, your schedule is going to get busy. I guarantee you, your schedule will get busy. People are going to hurt you. It's going to happen in the church. But you know what? Don't make that commitment to Jesus superficial. Stick with it. By God's grace, continue to press on in fellowship. Press on in Christ. Don't, make, don't equate your commitment to go work out the same as what you're trying to do. And follow Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you. We've got a community here of people who will love you and surround you and build you up when your commitments feel a little shaky. We all need that. Fourth woe. All right. Verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why keep saying the same thing? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Well, number four, out of whack holiness. Let me explain this. They were pursuing holiness and obedience to the Lord in an unbalanced way. They're focusing on all the small stuff while, while leaving out the big stuff. So, right, here's the deal. Old Testament terminology, you're to tithe. You're to give a percentage of not just your income, but what you produce. And so that would also include, like, produce, vegetables, and fruit. And you want to give a percentage of that to the Lord. Well, these leaders were really, really super spiritual. They were tithing their herbs and spices. You know you're holy when you start going into your kitchen cabinets and, and dividing stuff out and giving percentage of your spices to the Lord. They thought they were awesome. And Jesus says, oh, that's really fancy. I, that's really good. And I'm not going to discourage that. But you're missing the weightier issues of justice, mercy, compassion, and faithfulness to the Lord. Do you see how their spirituality was totally out of whack. And, and throughout the history of the Christian of the church, of the Christian church, we've seen this kind of out of whack spirituality, and it comes up uh, in our day and our time. And I think you can feel it more than you can explain it. Have you ever been in a, in a, in a small group or in a Bible study in a church, and they're talking about something that seems sort of important, but a smaller issue, and a lot of weightier issues are neglected, and you kind of feel like, ugh. Like, let, let's talk about some weighty issues. 
weighty issues would be like this. People need to hear the gospel of Jesus. We need to share the gospel because without Jesus, people will perish and be separated from God forever in hell. So I think we can all agree that sharing the gospel is a pretty weighty, big issue. In addition, there's a lot of suffering going on around the world. You think about uh, especially widows and, and children who are suffering greatly. But sometimes what we can do, we can get so out of whack and we, can, and we can just totally miss the evangelism and the compassion and we can start talking about things like whether Christians should drink or not. No, no, we can talk about that, right? I have no problem talking about that. But to elevate that way up here while we ignore the small issues and then we see Christians start getting into fights on how they should school their children, homeschool, private school, public school, and we elevate these as big issues and we elevate worship music. What kind of worship music should we be, be doing? Should we do hymns? Should we do praise choruses? And we, we'll talk about a lot of details. And, and for any of you who are involved in campus ministries, you've got to be very careful because you can just get, get so sidetracked and start talking about a lot of small and pointless things and totally miss the weightier things. And I believe that when you are engaged in weightier things, all the small stuff will kind of take care of itself. In about two months, we are sending a team from our church over to Haiti. This past week, it marked the uh, two-year anniversary of the earthquake in Haiti, and things are still pretty much a mess over there. And I was watching a certain special on TV, and they were showing this little five-year-old kid. I have a five-year-old kid. But they were showing this five-year-old kid in this little hut who is is sick, and they were asked, um, they asked somebody, what's going to happen to this little kid? And the answer was, they're going to die. And I think that when you start to engage and your heart starts to go toward areas of compassion and mercy and you think about people without Jesus and you kind of just kind of go all out there, I think it makes all the smaller stuff that we kind of argue over, I'm not saying they're inconsequential, but I think it just kind of makes a lot of that just get in the right perspective. So we don't have this out-of-whack theology. And I praise God for this church. I feel like this church rarely gets sidetracked into quibbling about small things. And when we do, you'll see that I get annoyed. And so I think we all should get annoyed. We don't want to get sidetracked on the smaller things, but continue to hold up the weightier matters of what Christ is calling us to. Let's move on. I want to, move, I want to put together... Verse, uh, woe five and woe six. I think they go together. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Once again, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the, and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe number five, woe number six, clean exterior Filthy interior. They looked good on the outside, but inwardly they were corrupt. 
And Jesus compares them to dinnerware and to graves, where he said the plates and the cups could be ceremonially clean so they wouldn't contaminate them for worship. They could be clean on the outside, and the tombs could be painted up beautifully so that no one steps and makes himself ceremonially unclean by stepping on the top of the bones. He said the, the tombs can look beautiful, the plates can look beautiful, but he says, metaphorically, he says, now inside, you are corrupt. You look great on the outside, but your inside is filthy. Inside, you're full of greed, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. So I think he's trying to get us to move away from the surface trivial life of sitting in pews in a church and reading your Bible and looking great on the outside. He's trying to get us to say, okay, what is going on inside? What is going inside in your inner man and your inner woman? What's, what are the thoughts that keep repeating in your head? What's going on in your heart? What's your motives? What does it mean when Jesus says that your insides are full of greed and anger and lust and selfishness? You can just go and add a lot to it. What does it mean that our inside that's full of these things. Because all of us, you've you, you got to admit it, all of us from time to time have bad thoughts. Yeah? And you're like, no, that's just you, preacher. <laughs> no, all of us do, right? We all run. And so when Jesus starts talking about all this inward stuff, I'm going, oh, my goodness. I'm doomed. Because I'm up front preaching the Word of God. And I'm thinking, oh, but inside of me, I know what, what goes on from time to time. And so I, I, was, I was really trying to think about this what does Jesus mean to be full of these sins inside? Does it just mean if you've ever thought these things and you're full of it inside, this wickedness? And, and so I, I, think, I think this is what the distinction is. I think what Jesus is talking about involves plotting and making a plan to capitalize. I think it involves plotting. So let's just say, okay, you perhaps have had a thought in your head that you want to win the lottery. No? Okay. Just a few of you. You want to win the lottery. You want to be rich. You want to have all this money so you can do the Lord's work, right? (laughs) Of course. So you want to win the lottery. And then you're like, why am I thinking about that? That's not right. And you repent. You say, Jesus, forgive me. You are my treasure. And so you kind of, you battle against those thoughts. But then there's some who are involved in plotting. You pick a major because you want to be rich. You crank out the hours because you want to be rich. And your end goal and your plans and your desires is to be rich. So you can sit in church and read the Bible and take notes, but inwardly you're plotting and hoping to capitalize on being rich. I think that's probably what he's talking about in the greed area. And for those of you who are married, you read a lot of these marriage books and you'll see from time to time that spouses will think about and wished that they were married to someone else. And so as they think about being married to someone else, they think, that is a terrible, terrible thought. Lord Jesus, please forgive me, change my mind, change my heart, and you move on. But then there are some... That's their plot. That's their hope. That's their dream. To hope in one day to be married to someone else. 
so they can sit in church, Bible open, taking notes, amen, and the preacher. But inside there is this hope and there is this plot that they're just filled with these desires. No repentance, just dwelling on it. I think Jesus is getting at plotting. What's going on inside your heart? What are you thinking right now? What have you been thinking recently? What are you hoping to capitalize on? Are you hoping to fulfill your lust and your evil desires and to pursue your greed and your life of of comfort and ease? I mean, what's going on inside? And Jesus comes to you and says, make your inside clean. Clean the inside. Clean it up. Don't give me the surface stuff. Clean it up. And, of course, we can't. And so we go to the one who can we say, Jesus, you've got to clean me. I'm a mess. I look great on the outside. My friends and family think I'm really holy, but I'm a mess. Clean me inwardly. Forgive my sins. Change my thinking. Change my mind and my heart. And make it desire and worship you. And now on to the last one. Woe seven. You guys have been hanging in there good through these woes. This is the last one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Woe number seven, silencing the voice of God. The Israel leaders in the past have killed the prophets to silence the voice of God, and now the new generation of leaders make these great shrines to the prophets and say, if we lived back then, we certainly wouldn't have silenced the voice of God. And then here comes the voice of Jesus, and they want him crucified. Here come the apostles after him, and they are going to see that they are persecuted and killed. They will continue to walk in the line of their forefathers to silence the voice of God. I think we need to be careful that we don't get caught up in our traditions, as these leaders did. We don't get caught up in our causes And we don't get caught up in our politics that we fail to hear the voice of God in his word. And I I don't don't know where everybody's at here, but I know a lot of you are are really following what's happening politically. And I know we're entering that season again of where politics will be in the spotlight. And I know that some of you are, are very passionate about your political positions and candidates. But let me tell you and remind you that at our core, We are not Republicans. At our core, we are not Democrats. At our core, we are absolute monarchists. We bow to King Jesus alone. I want you to remember that. Remember that. And so as you are getting into it, remember, okay, this is the voice of God. 
Do not let your, some policies that you are excited about to trump the word of God. Some positions that you may be excited about to override the word of God. This is the word of God that we bow to alone. We are absolute monarchists. King Jesus, speak truth to us. So in your traditions, don't throw out traditions. In your politics, do not throw out politics. But make sure that you are not silencing the voice of God. So which one did you choose? Let's review the list again. Shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Make converts children of hell. Superficial spirituality, out-of-whack holiness, clean exterior, filthy interior, and silencing the voice of God. And I think it's important for you to identify trivial tendencies within you because what it's going to make you do, it's going to turn, make you turn to the non-trivial Christ. And back to this double knowledge idea, I really want you to know yourself. I want you to, in some sense, be introspective of what's going on, what you're feeling, what your tendencies are. But I want you to turn your eyes to the Lord as well. As Augustine said before John Calvin, many years before, Augustine said, Lord, this is a good prayer. Lord, let me know myself. Let me know you. So today, just be, be honest. Be honest about some of these tendencies in your life. Be honest about corrupt desires. Be honest if you have some superficial spirituality. And just, just be, be honest and be straightforward. But don't stop there at the introspection. After you see what's going on inside, turn your eyes outward. And remember the arms of Jesus are open. His grace is there. His forgiveness is there. He is longing to speak truth to you. He's longing to guide you and direct you in the right direction for his glory. So take what's, what's going on inside and turn it outside and find him there waiting to heal you, embrace you, and give you much grace. Let's pray. Lord, I just, it just strikes me that the, the men you speak about in these passages are separated from you right now. But Lord because of your work in reconciling us to you through Jesus, for those of us who have faith, we don't have to be separated from you. We can know you. We can see the longing arms that you don't speak that to us, that you long to gather us, that we kept running away. We thank you for bringing us back and embracing us in your arms. And I, I just, in my own life, I don't want those tendencies that were in these leaders. And in my lives, my brothers and sisters, if, I know they don't want that trivial tendencies as well. And so I just ask, Lord, that you help us to be honest about what's going on. Help us be honest about, with our emotions, honest with our feelings, honest with our desires. And see that in you is truth. In you is forgiveness of our sins because your death on the cross and resurrection. In you is hope. So I just ask you to give us life and purpose and focus today. And, 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 and snap, snap us out of our obsessions with trivialness. Snap us out, Lord. And get our eyes upon you and what really matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.